Our This Week in XR podcast is sponsored by our friends at Sapper, the world's leading augmented reality platform and creative studio. With over 11 years of experience working with the world's biggest brands through Zapper Creative Studio. Zapper also has an award-winning web AR platform, Zapworks, that lets you create your own mobile AR magic. Finally, check out their Zap Box, the most affordable mixed reality headset on the planet. Start creating AR over at zap.works or talk to them about your next AR project at zapper.com. Good morning, everybody. It's the 9th of December, 2022. I'm Charlie Fink with Ted Shilowitz and Roni Abovitz for This Week in XR. Our guest this week is Henrik Witt. He is the Chief Product Officer of TeamViewer, uh, which is uh, has a software platform that powers a lot of the industrial AR that we should talk more about because that's really where the money is at at the moment. And of course, Roni, you have uh, considerable experience uh, considering enterprise workspaces. So we'll look forward to talking about that. But let's hit the, the news real quick and get to Henrik, who's in the green room. Uh, the FTC is suing Meta versus Within, um, which is, you know, if you're going to start enforcing antitrust law, I get it, right? They should never have let Meta acquire Instagram. But this blocking the acquisition of within shows there's tremendous ignorance on the part of the FTC about what's going on with this particular deal. Yeah, there may be other software acquisitions that they could poke a stick at. But this is a really weird one, because without this acquisition, I'm not sure within even with a hit game could survive as an independent company. Yeah. And, and why is this the starting point? Why, why didn't it start with Beat Saber or one of the other big acquisitions that they made or, you know, or, or Google with Tilt Brush X amount of years ago? Like, how come this has the moment and the others didn't? I, I don't know. Roni, any, any Charlie, guesses? I want to come off the ropes a little bit on this one. So uh, bias uh, uh, conflict on, on the table. Uh, Chris Milk's a friend of mine. He founded Within. Yeah. Um, but look, they, they are a really cool player. There is just so much competition out there. This this makes no sense to me. But also, like, I don't understand what the government's trying to do. Are they trying to throttle like the tech economy because if you prevent a within from being acquired, then you're going to prevent startups from being funded because most companies aren't going yes. to go public. They're going to so if Apple, Google, Facebook, Amazon, Microsoft can't buy companies, it's ludicrous. And I know that they're coming after Microsoft buying Activision. I'm like, are we a free market or not? Well, uh, Microsoft Activision is an interesting case because you you can see what the concern is there. The consolidated company represents over 20% of the market. They own Xbox. They go from the fourth largest game company, uh, the fifth large, the second largest game company acquires the fifth largest game company to become the largest game company. And okay. I just think given the limited number of game consoles, there's really only two or I guess three if you count Nintendo in there. So I just don't know that 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 deal passes the smell test uh, well, for me is, in antitrust a, because that's a public company. It's just a totally different thing than uh, team than not team, uh, than within. You know, within is a, a tiny of, company relative to the size of this industry. This is a bit of the three of us acting like our own little technology supreme court, right? Because there's <laughs> a very interesting nuanced argument here, right? Yes. And. The flip side of this is that a lot of young developers make a valid case by saying they can't get a leg up because these large companies are gobbling up everything and never give them a chance 
to actually be something, you know, and and they're more referring to understand that, though, Ted. stuff. You don't agree with that, Ronnie? Like, hey, look, like those little developers are companies like Within, and at some point, you know, and Chris is a friend, he's the founder. At some point, uh, the investors who put money in you need a return, so you either go public or you get acquired. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it's very hard as a standalone little company like they are to be fully profitable on your own. So an acquisition is like a home run, and that that being prevented makes no sense. It makes no sense. I, the only thing I thought of every investor, like you know, because they they think what's what's going to happen next. What the only thing I thought of is 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 the FTC sort of trying out their arguments on within before they take on Activision yeah, and Microsoft. Could be. Uh, so other news: uh, creator economy was the topic at Snap's LensFest this week. Uh, there were several other stories about new apps to aid content creators who are trying to bring in 3D objects into the metaverse, whether native digital or whether digitized in the physical world. And I just feel like this is the moment when everybody has gone, aha, without creators, we're dead. And we have to compensate those creators. It's a little bit like an early platform, like Quest having to go out and pay developers to develop for their platform because there are not enough consumers to support it yet. Mm. So uh, I, I thought it was interesting. I think Snap has realized that their creators are, are free to create on other platforms that would compensate them better. Uh, so, you know, getting them, I mean, they have been informally getting them involved in a lot of their third party deals with advertisers, but this is really a chance for them to get paid to create pay services for consumers on the Snap platform, uh, which is still huge, despite whatever woes they have in the stock market. They have 350 million daily uniques, uh, over 200 million in the United States. So this is a company that is rich in assets, even if they're having trouble monetizing it at the moment. But whatever is happening on that side of the business, they have to take care of their creators. And are they all just watching the phenomenon of TikTok continue to grow and, and blossom and find this unique vein uh, and just trying to mirror that in some way, shape or form, right? Every, every platform I look at these days seems like they're trying to TikTokify themselves. That just seems to be the order of the day. Um, so I don't know if you guys agree or disagree, but that seems to be the trend. Well, I don't know whether that's happening on Snap. I'm not a Snap user. It is. It's happening on Snap. It's happening on on Instagram, on on YouTube, on anything that has. Oh, no, I know YouTube. YouTube. I know YouTube and Instagram are at this point most of the time hard to distinguish from All TikTok. about this flippable, right? Flippable video kind of thing. It seems to be like everybody's moving to that. Um, so let's let's finish the news segment with something that Ted, Ted and I were burning this one up in the green room just because it's such an exciting idea. Gorillas, which as you know, the pop band always performs as avatars, never as humans. So they've decided to go ahead and do a live concert as, as avatars in AR, meaning you have to, you, you watch the show through your smartphone camera, but here's the twist. It's location-based. Right. right. So, so you can't YouTube. see the AR illusion unless you're in Times Square or Piccadilly Circus in London, uh, which I think is a brilliant idea. Yeah, it's very, very Pokemon Go like, right? It's location based. You have to be in these places that have huge amounts of foot traffic. So Times Square in New York, Piccadilly Circus in London, and the band will show up. But you have to you have to see <laughs> it through your little magic window. And of course, you know, Rony taking a page out of your book. Well, that's so damn restrictive, that little magic window. I want to, for a concert like that, I want to wear it. I want to be able to like have very little separation between the illusion 
and the real world. And that would be magical. You know, the, the smartphone thing, I guess it's just a bridge to, to success because it's got scale, right? But and every time we, I see uh, one of these things, I get so excited. But then it's like, yeah, but I don't want it on a six inch screen. I want it to fill my field of view, you know, so. We, we piloted Ted um, uh, AR concerts with, uh, with some really big bands that I, I can't name them right now. Uh, but just, you know, Gorillas Bigger, Bigger. And I think we even intersect with them at some point. I think the idea is really great. Uh, it's an idea we tossed around really early. But I think the issue is like seeing it through a phone kind of sucks. It'll be a novelty. And at some point, my, my guess is like later this decade into the 2030s, this same idea where you get to put on a sleek, elegant, like what I'm wearing right now, and you'll have like great sound field, little inserts. That will be the moment. Like yeah. this will be the... This is like the teaser. It's like the appetizer, but it's not quite the thing. But when you've tasted the real thing, I'm sure those guys want to do the real thing too. There just isn't enough scale yet in devices, but it's coming and that'll be amazing. Yeah, we keep pushing. We keep hoping and pushing. So. It'll, get It'll get the there. The one the one thing I will say about smartphones at concerts today uh, is not only do they have scale, but everybody's got a smartphone in their hand during a concert anyway. So why wouldn't, you know, Bands spend millions of dollars building elaborate sets and lighting rigs, and they probably pay upwards of half a million dollars to take the thing apart and put it together in another city every few days. So why not take some of that and put it in the phone? Mm. You also have the perfect uh, situation because everybody is in one space and you can run a graphic or whatever you want around the stage, instructing people what to do and where to go in their phones. Okay, so here's an interesting postulation, because you're, you're touching on an interesting point, Charlie. So if you take all the money that a stage show requires to put up that giant screen and all the pyro and all the other effect, lighting effects and stuff, and just have a, have a concert of a big band come into a giant white empty space, and with the money you spend for all of that physical stuff, everybody gets a pair of glasses and they're all IOT connected and you can do this amazing stuff. You can bring all that stuff to reality and beyond when you wear something and there's no physical spend. It's just an empty space with good. Well, that is, that is a sci-fi thought that the cost of the glasses makes <laughs> awesome disposable. Yeah. If the glasses were disposable. Right? <laughs> Ted, I think that line's crossing and I am working. I can't, I won't name them now with one of the music labels on Almost exactly like what you described. Awesome. Great. Great, great. All right. All right. Let's let's bring our guest in, Hendrik Witt. He's the chief product officer of TeamViewer. Those of you in the industry will remember his company, Ubimax, which created a fantastic uh, X platform that, you know, uh, helped assisted reality micro displays uh, deliver real results for real businesses. Uh, no surprise they were acquired by a big company like TeamViewer. Uh, and it seems like, Hendrik, you are up in the business of TeamViewer in a big way as their chief product officer. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Charlie, for having me. Yeah, that's actually true. Yeah. So, so tell us about the expanded scope of your role now at TeamViewer. Uh, which is clearly way beyond UbiMax and and uh, what TeamViewer has going right now. Sure. So um, obviously, I mean, I, I guess uh, many people know TeamViewer, right? From helping moms and dads uh, on computers, remoting into devices, these types of things. That is what kind of TeamViewer built and invented as a product more than 15 years ago, right? But we came a long way as a company 
and, and we've been obviously transitioning more and more into enterprise spaces with remote control, but then also thanks to you know, a world getting smarter in terms of devices, um, we are now no longer just remoting into computers, but also remoting into embedded systems of all sorts, uh, forms and fashion, um, so to speak. But then, you know, back the days, then was the idea of TeamViewer, and that was also why they ultimately acquired RubyMax as a kind of a augmented reality player. That was, what if the problem is not in software? What if the problem is something where you need to physically do something? be it on the device or, or be it on a big machinery or something. And that was where augmented reality was the key element for, for TeamViewer uh, and in particular for TeamViewer's future. So as chief product officer of TeamViewer right now, I'm, I'm no longer quote unquote only looking after kind of the frontline product portfolio, which is kind of the augmented reality stuff for the industrial shop floor. Um, but also on all the remote control pieces, be it for embedded devices or, or classical IT support uh, type of scenarios. Uh, can you give us a more specific use case? I mean, I love this, but um, tell us how your clients are doing it as a practical, using your software as a practical matter. Look, for example, I think, you know, when somebody has an IT problem, right, on a computer that, you know, whether it's a misconfiguration of software whatsoever, Obviously with TeamViewer, you can remote into that device, no matter where you are in the world, right? A remote IT expert can remote into the device and can take over control of that device. So while I think that is a common use case, there's a lot of players out there in the field, you could argue, why would I bother? So now here's the thing, when it comes to you know smart equipment, smart devices, think about even industrial coffee machines, for example, is a great example. Um, we now get used by those coffee machine manufacturers to remote into their coffee machines. So providing services without travel, mm. reducing mm. CO2 emission, all these type of things, mm -hmm. but also, you know, getting the coffee running as fast as possible again, kind of. Um, okay, so, so I have a I have an interesting question that uh, hopefully you have a really, really good answer for. Uh, first of all, I'm a big, big fan of TeamViewer. Uh, I think, Charlie, you might know this. Many years ago, I was an equity partner in a, in a VFX uh, company, and we used uh, TeamViewer constantly. And it was a huge benefit to us to be able to share all the assets, you know, and, and essentially remote into everyone's computers constantly. So it's a, it's a huge success. You touched on the coffee maker. And yeah. in my mind, I went a little bit to the, to the Skynet scare, right? Um, mm -hmm. So... When you can remote into computers, okay, I get that, and maybe that's a little bit scary, but when you can remote into any device that has often very limited or no protections for piracy or, or bad actors, how does a company like TeamViewer prevent somebody from using their using this software in a very nefarious way? How, what, what, hmm. what steps do you take? Because often companies talk a good game about how they're protecting their consumers, but it's proven over and over again that there are cracks in the armor and people use these things not for oh. great benefit. Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, look, I mean, uh, you're touching on security, right? Which is one of the very, very important things in our product portfolio. So we, we spend tons of effort on, on getting, you know, the tech secure. So 
Um, you can remote into that coffee machine only if the team, your client sits uh, on the thing, or let's say the host module, whatever we call it, right? And then we can establish the connection to this. And we have own router infrastructure um, across the globe where data gets fully end-to-end um, -end encrypted and all these things. So, so and, and there is a lot of more means that we have in place in order, obviously, to prevent malicious use, if you will, right? Yeah, but certainly, I mean, it's a very, very powerful tool and you have to stay on top of security every day, basically, because it's so powerful um, and I agree. And, 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 and you know, uh, I mean, uh, it's fair to say everyone can look it up, right? From time to time, because there is also a different team to your product that is free to use, right? Mm -hmm. which, which is a different product that I'm talking about on the, on the embedded space. I mean, there is uh, things that you can find on fraud, and we're working against that, right? It's 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 a battle. As a, as a movie guy, I just have, as you're talking, I'm just visualizing when every coffee maker in the world rises up against its user. It's like yeah. the most awesome story ever. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm glad you're taking it seriously because it is a very yeah, no, absolutely, story. absolutely. Well, there's an interesting case in the coffee maker, just to get back, not that it has importance other than representing sort of IoT-ish application of TeamViewer software. Um, but okay, so you can diagnose the problem remotely, but obviously you can't open up the coffee maker exactly. with your software. So is there a way for a local employee to kind of get told via an app or an email how to proceed, how to execute the procedure that the software has detected needs to be done. So here you go. And that is where Frontline comes into play, right? The, the AR augmented reality platform for step-by-step -step instruction, these type of things that came in through the UbiMax acquisition. So taking the coffee machine example, yes, you cannot open the coffee machine and try to do all sorts of things that you have to do in order to bring this thing up and run it. Um, but we, what we can do is, you know, we can we can send, for example, instructions to a person, um, be it obviously, you know, whatsoever person is there, for example, leveraging the phone, like you just previously discussed, because everyone has that, it, it's scale, right? right? So when you can get them the instructions, the step-by-step -step instructions, powered by augmented reality, so giving them really the visual cues that they need in order to do better, let's say. That's one thing, which is kind of close to, you know, a consumer that can use that. But obviously the coffee machine manufacturers, they also have own field forces, right? Own field service troops. And they sometimes get equipped more with, you know, more mixed reality type of devices even, where they can go into CAT drawings, eventually get digital twin type of models around these devices, maybe not so much on a coffee machine, but there is bigger equipment, more complex right, equipment course. out there where the use case is basically exactly the same and there you need to leverage all of that capabilities. And that is then the beauty around XR, right? Where you can really um, leverage uh, holograms and all these things in order to do better. So there's, um, there's a lot of, um, I'd say, competition in the space for remoting in to computers and environments. Clearly what you're doing with an augmented reality sort of subset of that is a is a distinction. How would you position TeamViewer against some of the other like remote in to the computer? And a lot of the big tech companies are sort of building this into a software layer themselves, right? Um, so, right. so you know, I'm just curious how, how you position the company. So the difference in TeamViewer, I would argue, is 
not necessarily the mode connectivity and control, so which I rather would call the tool itself. It's more the solution around it. It's really the end-to-end -end solution, right? So we go after enterprises like the coffee machine makers and provide them the end-to-end -end experience, right? So remoting in, trying to fix it from remote, but if remote doesn't help or the problem is actually outside, be it in hardware, for example, then we have the seamless transition into augmented reality. And that's, that's kind of a unique proposition that we really can go, let's say, from fixing a problem in software all the way fixing the problem in reality. To use augmented reality in the process, would you use a QR code or computer vision to localize it for the AR so that you could go as far as kind of labeling the coffee machine and showing how it could open and, and so forth or identifying screws that have to yes. be removed? Yes, we, we, we could. I mean, you can go as simple as a QR code, which sometimes is, is the case that we do, but, but you can also do the visual tracking piece, right? Edge-based tracking, model-based tracking, these type of things, because when you remote into the device, by the moment we, we, we remote into the device because it has a problem, we know what model that is. We know all the details that maybe there's even telemetry data right. that we already know in order to pick, let's say, the right uh, um, instructions in order to get, bring the thing up and running again. So, so that's really a nice, I'd say, a nice combination of somewhat of an IoT-ish case plus the, the augmented reality piece. And that's that's kind of unique. And, we're, and of course, for people who are listening, we're talking about a coffee maker, but it's really just a metaphor for a giant gas processing plant or industrial machinery, uh, which is probably much more of a common use case uh, because it's so expensive and complicated to maintain that equipment. Correct. It's all bespoke Correct. equipment. It's not like you, you, no. you know, every industry has a slightly, even if it's the same industry, usually this is equipment that's been running for decades. So they have a whole different class of experience of uh, machinery as well. Exactly. It's just a, just a, let's say, a fairly simple example of, you know, trying to understand what, what we're building and doing. When we're, when we're talking about remoting into these exotic machines and sometimes these consumer machines, uh, how far are you along the line with using head-mounted displays? Are you working with HoloLens or a Vuzix or a Magic Leap or any of those devices to team view and do a digital overlay sort of workflow into that? Where where do you stand with all that sort of? Yeah, thing? that's for example, for example, with uh, with the HoloLens device, we're doing exactly this, and we do have customers that that do this that way. Yes, um, we we you know when it comes to to smart glasses, we do. You know, support the multitude of devices, the the true mixed reality type of devices like Hololens Magic Leaps, um, but also the rather assisted reality devices, right? The the the, the real ones, the musics of the world, because some of the workflows, you know, you you don't necessarily need the 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 the, the very immersive way of, of mixed reality, right? Um, and and sometimes it has also to do with you know the complexity of the technology. And, and the people that actually use that, right? So, so we, we, you could say really there's the full spectrum that we support from, you mentioned the bridging technology type of a thing like mobile devices today, right? That's, that's the first thing, um, over to assisted reality devices and then all the way to, to mixed reality. Do, do you have a sense of the, the sort of economies of scale of, of like how big is the side of the company that is using TeamView or just on traditional PCs? 
to remote in versus these sort of newfangled uh, opportunities to kind of do yeah, this well, overlay stuff. Yeah, so, um, you know, looking at the business, how we've been growing the business uh, over the last uh, 16 years, the majority is still on, on remoting into the software side. Mm-hmm. Um, but like I said, with the world getting smarter, there is now more and more organizations, you know, running into the challenge of, okay, but now what if the problem is a combination of software and hardware? How do we handle that, right? Well, we're just not used to it. So, so we're, we're growing in that space, but yes, it's fair to say that the majority of the business is still coming, coming out of the traditional um, area, right? I, I think everyone in that space and the AR space would agree, right? It's, it's, we're, we're still in this somewhat earlier phases. We're not early. We have large organizations adopting it at scale, but but there's not millions of organizations right now doing it. But 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 there is uh, quite a ton that is embarking or has embarked on that journey now. Also, um, to a certain extent, uh, because of the pandemic, right? Because you couldn't travel, you couldn't transfer knowledge. The new, I mean, it all started with. I mean, we obviously have been seeing a huge um, spike in terms of demand for you know, remote assistance on on uh, using AR. Uh, but now that this technology is out in the field, that people have been using it on smart glasses, for example, obviously they now go and think about, you know, what can I do more with these type of smart glass devices? And that's exactly where now work instructions, these type of things come in. And, and certainly also for mixed reality, there's a lot around training. And Andrew, a quick question. Um, do you think of your company as like a metaverse infrastructure company? You know, if you think about like how you've been evolving from like this IoT assist and, and the way the internet is today and to where the internet is evolving, feels like you're you're like a transition company from one form to the next. But do you think about that? Do you think of like, what's your role when all the metaverse technologies like fully bloom? and how you might change around that. Yeah, um, I think it's, to some extent, uh, I like that comparison. I think you could argue we were, to some extent, you know, an infrastructure company, but, um, and we probably remain so more on, on the traditional side of the IT side, but but as it gets more into the, the, the embedded operational technology side, um, we're also walking up the stack, if you will, so we're providing really these solutions around that, right? We we leverage um, augmented reality, mixed reality type of things, and really providing end-to-end solutions. So what we're so where while you could say, you know, in a traditional team viewer business, we are a tool, and and we get used in whatsoever process. Um, when it comes to um, augmented reality and the newer products and solutions that we bring to the market, it's all about being a solution. It's all about being embedded into business processes, kind of not being a tool in a business process, but really coming with the solution, uh, leveraging metaverse technology really end-to-end. That's at least what we're seeing is also the demand in, in, in the industrial enterprise space right now. So there are in your industry uh, integrators like Liberstream, uh, PTC, 
uh, Accenture, the big consulting companies. And those guys are kind of acting like the glue, right? Because they're embedded in the companies. They're the ones providing IT support and new technology support. And they're the ones who kind of push through this uh, POC hell on behalf of the companies. And you're part of that solution, right? Exactly, exactly. We have a kind of a partner strategy from a go-to-market. Some some customers we serve directly, but but the vast majority is really through the Accenture of the world, truly, because like you mentioned, um, Charlie, they they have, you know, they they they're in constant interaction. With right. Well, it's companies. it's what they do every day. I mean, in exactly. is in digital exactly. transformation, they're gonna do that once. Look, the, the, the frontline platform is a platform. It ships kind of with, with some form of standard process-based solutions. But by the end of the day, let's face it, it's almost like SAP, right? Yes, it's great that it comes with a template. But by the end of the day, the enterprises themselves twist and tweak it uh, uh, to, to their individual needs, which is exactly what is also um, happening more and more with, with our type of solutions that we offer. Charlie, can I can I tie this back to an interesting comment that we were talking about earlier in our uh, our podcast today? Do the three of you know roughly how many employees Accenture has? Just by take a guess. I think it's like one hundred and eighty thousand. Higher. Really. It's over seven hundred thousand employees. So when we were, when we were talking Holy about crap. you know the FTC sort of tried to figure out what is too big, what is too powerful, as you guys are talking about Accenture. I just remembered, wow, Accenture is a humongous yes. corporation, right? Does a company like that have an ownership level of the market mm-hmm. share that is actually mm-hmm. a little scary for the government? They don't seem to be bothering with those guys very much. <laughs> you know, I don't know. So uh, it's just an interesting point to be made. Well, there are there other integrators, even even at that scale, right? That is, McKinsey doesn't have that kind of scale. Well, they're all very big. I mean, you know, Boston is is big, Globent is big, but Accenture is is I think the biggest for uh, for people for people WC at home who may big. not have have worked in big companies uh, like Ted and I have. Uh, when you walk into a, a, let's say, let's take uh, Google or Yahoo for example, when you walk in there, a lot of those people. You think they're Google employees, but they're not. They're working for Accenture or McKinsey, and they're embedded in that company for however long on whatever projects they're on. It could be, in the case of some projects, really years. And they're indistinguishable from the other employees that they're working alongside of. And I I had no idea. I was totally shocked by this. Terrifying, right? Uh, I'm totally shocked. In 2020, it's probably bigger now. 2020, PwC had almost 300,000 employees. So, right. and those employees that. and those employees are spread across the Fortune 1000. Right, exactly. And they're they're super important for all of us in that industry, right? In order to bring the kind of the the metaverse to life in these organizations, right? They that, that we we somewhat rely on them, right, to do this. Unfortunately, not all of these employees are into the metaverse game, but hopefully that's that can be our ambition by by some. Microsoft has 220,000 employees, give or take. So, so Accenture has four times the amount of employees that Microsoft has. And like, what? Well, but again, you walk into Microsoft, and I'm <laughs> sure that place is stuffed with McKinsey. Loaded with them, right. And Accenture. And by the way, different divisions use different consulting companies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you yeah. might walk in there, and there's PwC, and there's Accenture, and 
You, but those guys actually come up against what I think is the hardest part uh, of the process of, um, you, you know, digitizing the, the workforce and uh, giving everybody access to the metaverse, however we define that. And it's it's happening, I think, more slowly than anyone anticipated because there is so much friction in process change on the frontline level. I mean, everybody is busy working. And most companies don't have the luxury of, you know, having a giant staff looking at new technologies. So, you know, they put together this formula for change, um, but it is still really, really uh, slow moving process. Uh, so I guess my question is one of momentum, right? Do you think the momentum is accelerating for that? Or is this just sort of a slow build that's going to take the rest of the decade? Well, I think we would all agree uh, it is slow. It has been slow, and we all hope for acceleration over the last years. Um, what we're seeing is certainly through pandemic, um, things got accelerated, right? In terms of tech adoption around the globe, when we when we look at the you know at, at our various different regions from the Americas over Europe to to Asia. We've been seeing across the board uh, an increase in acceleration of tech adoption, um, tech also for, for relevant for the metaverse uh, space. So I do believe we're at least on a higher pace than we used to be. Is it lightning fast? Unfortunately, no, right? Um, it, but, but I think it, it, will, it will continue. So I, I don't see right now Anything where, which gives me an indicator, a strong indicator that things will slow down again after this uh, kind of peak around um, pandemic. Now, that being said, obviously, uh, time will tell what, you know, the, the, the macroeconomical environment we're all right now in, whether this will do good or bad to, to the metaverse adoption, right? Um. Speaking of the HoloLens, which you said your uh, <clears throat> team viewer uh, sees a lot of industrial adoption there. I mean, I guess my question is really because there's a lot of suspicion and rumors about the HoloLens being in trouble, especially with the $22 billion IVAS deal being renegotiated, <laughs> whatever that means, but it's not going to be too, it's not going to be $22 billion anytime soon. So is the HoloLens, because I've heard that there are few people using the HoloLens, that everybody is going to practical right. solutions like realware, it's disposable, but you know, Google Glass 2, they're cheap enough to throw in a box and not care. Correct. No, and, and don't get me wrong. We see some adoption. I wouldn't say we're seeing a lot of adoption of that device. And yes, the current environment and the rumors around it are not helpful, I would say, in terms of adoption. Look, I think the, the, the challenge is always a bit with, with HoloLens type of devices, just the cost, right? It comes down to the cost of these devices. And, and then ultimately, and, and because we're just dealing only with enterprises and industrial shop floor type of people, it always comes down to, well, is that really needed? Or is that may maybe that is better? Maybe all, for sure it's cooler, but it's also better. But maybe there's even, but I just can't afford. I just can't afford it. I don't have the money to spend on this. Is there not maybe something that is a little bit less capable, but still good enough for me, right? And then we're too, down to, you know, the, the, the Googles, the, the real wearers and the alikes where the price point is significantly lower. 
yes, the capabilities are restricted, more restricted, but maybe good enough in, in many use cases. Certainly not for all. I think it's a completely different picture when you look at training. I think there you really see those devices play off the, the, the full blown uh, mixed reality. But in many, let's say, you know, we do a lot in, in warehouse logistics. I mean, there, a head up display, a monocular one is just good enough, right? Uh, and, and comes comes in significantly uh, lower price. So question for you, Roni, um, because people are considering, you know, in these situations, uh, along with the their advisors, whoever they are, uh, they, you know, they consider different solutions and different, uh, you know, first of all, we're talking about the difference between real augmented reality, where you have digital uh, content placed against the physical world or assisted reality, which is what you get from Realware and Google Glass, which is just a compute, little computer monitor hanging off your peripheral vision, which you might refer to for, um, you know, picking in a warehouse or work instructions in an industrial environment, or I guess also inspection was a very big category uh, as well, right? So a remote worker can follow instructions as well as document, um, you know, the inspection of equipment and be do it in a hands-free voice controlled way. So it, it seems like there may be more use cases for that kind of mundane technology than there are, there are use cases for the more expensive technology. Am I wrong about that? Well, let me make a counter argument and, and also ask that question to Hendrik. I, I think the, we're in this very interesting middle period um, where devices are rapidly changing, but also the capabilities are changing. And I, I question I have for Hendrik, and I'll give you, I'll give Charlie a response and have a question for you. Is it the cost or is it the value proposition? And what I mean mm. by that is if I could take a $15 an hour employee, put them into a two or $3,000 device that turns them into an $80 employee, that's com continuously upscalable so that you're doing one thing in the morning and something else and that you don't have to go away for four weeks of training. And I think the big difference there is AI, right? Mm -hmm. and, and it's only the good devices that have the sophistication of sensing uh, and the visualization that they could play really well with AI. I think like the missing link, and it's actually distressing to me that, that so few companies are jumping on this. AI is an incredibly powerful force. A worker times AI. This is what I did at Mako. Like, Surgeon times AI times robot equals amazing outcomes. And we did a lot of proof testing at Magic Leap that you could take, you know, a low skilled worker, low wage, you couple them to a couple thousand dollar thing. You've made that with AI and suddenly they're doing amazing things. And I think that paradigm has not been put together properly. Uh, but I feel like that, that injection of AI plus you, which is not going to go very well in like a really cheap system that can't recognize the environment, can't understand you and your biomarkers, but I think can do well in the higher end devices. That's the missing part. If you take the AI out, you're like, you're driving a Ferrari at 10 miles an hour. You put the AI in, and I think this is the part that has to get connected, right? It's surprising to me that Microsoft didn't fully lay in because everything they have, all of those assets. Um, but you know, you think about like the AI, and I'm wondering Hendrik for you, like, do you see that mix of like really bringing AI in a strong way to like continuously upskill and, you know, almost training goes away because you're constantly having your own personal Jarvis. Uh, and that Jarvis is letting you do all these things you didn't even realize you could do. And I think 
you know, my vision there was you turn from Tony Stark plus Jarvis into like Neo in the Matrix and skills are just being injected into you uh, at greater and greater speed. And suddenly workers are capable of so many different things. So that's my counter argument and why um, the investment in the, in the real devices, I think will ultimately pay off because they're capable of doing incredibly good AI. So anyway, that was a bit of a diatribe, but also a question for Hendrik. What's your view on that? No, look, uh, Ronnie, I 100% agree with you, right? That That is also my vision. I absolutely believe in the power of AI in the mix, right? Um, and yes, it is all about the RI, like you say, right? If I can upskill a person to to so that it ultimately becomes the $80, $80 an hour uh, from, from a 15 and you can upskill like this, certainly then the RI is there. And um, I absolutely believe in the power of AI in, in these type of scenarios we're discussing. Uh, and in fact, we also have invested quite heavily in AI with something out as a product called AI Studio, where you know mm -hmm. there's computer vision type of things um, and tools that we give to the non-AI expert, almost like a, a no-code type of environment to use a, a computer vision and AI. Um, so that you can leverage that with smart glasses. And there we see an uptick. Now, that being said, I think what I'm referring to is more the today's situation. So because what, what we're also seeing is, yes, I'm 100% with you on AI. AI will change it. But can it change it already today? Here and there, I would agree, yes. But unfortunately, the vast majority of the problems, in particular, the ones that the customers have in mind, we would need to say, ah, great idea. Let me work on it, but not for today and tomorrow, right? It's probably more for the day after. So I think that's that's kind of, so I'm referring more to the current situation in terms of adoption that, that but when you ask me in terms of vision and where are you guys working on? We're working more on AI, and we're working on the rest. That's for sure, right? It's all about, for me, look, it's for me about all a, all about AI and data. And the one is kind of computer vision type of things. But the other thing is, I, I do believe very strongly in the power of all sorts of other vendors, right? You can do great stuff with IMUs and the likes, right? And can recognize, I don't know, motion patterns, body postures. You can do all sorts of cool things with that. And there is where the value is, I think. That is a great thought to end on. Uh, that's our show for today. Henrik, thank you so much uh, for joining us. I learned a lot from this conversation from you also, Roni. Uh, great to have you with us once again. Everybody have a great weekend, and we'll see you next Friday. Thanks, everybody. Thanks. Cheers.